Okay, let's go ahead and start. We're going to continue this morning, uh, week four in our series on faith and work and how our faith plays itself out through our work. And um, just by virtue of a, uh, um, or by means of a little bit of a, um, a review, in week one, we, we talked about the, the why behind our work. Paul walked us through um, the beginning of Genesis and talked through how um, we are workers because we have been designed that way by a God who begins his special revelation to us by describing himself as a worker. And then in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we see that um, we follow him in work as workers because we're made in his image. And then in the second week, we talked about the how behind our work, how we approach our work, and how from Genesis 1 and 2 and throughout Scripture, we, we are called to approach our work with the goal of, um, of creation flourishing. He says, go be fruitful and multiply. And where the, the fall, and that's where Paul took us last week, where the fall really puts some major obstacles and obstructions in our way as we try to do that, um, the command to pursue flourishing, to pursue wholeness, to pursue shalom with our work never goes away because it's reiterated multiple times in scriptures after the fall and after, um, uh, after Adam and Eve obviously had sinned. And so we talked through that in the second week. And then last week, we started to talk about the, the, the inevitable part of the conversation that um, sin, the fall, um, has majorly messed up our work. <laughs> um, our, our goal, our pursuit of, of, of wholeness and of flourishing doesn't change, but um, we, we now have to deal with the effects of sin on our work. And so Paul talked us, t- talked us through last week our tendency to, to divide work into secular and sacred and often diminish the importance of work that is not, let's say, um, vocational Christian ministry because um, we feel that it is in some way lesser, and that's not what God teaches us in Scripture. Um, so those were the first three weeks. I just wanted to give you a quick review if you, if you missed any of those, or if maybe this is your first time with us. This morning, we're going to continue. This week and next, we're going to talk about the effect of the fall on our work. And, uh, and today, what we're, what we're focused on is how we tend to, because of sin, because of the effects of the fall, we tend to, um, uh, we tend to tie our identity to our work. And again, as we've discussed many times, uh, that may be um, tied to your career, the, the work that you do in order to uh, make a living. That may be tied to volunteer work. That may be tied to your, that could be tied to how well you keep up your house <laughs> or, or the lack thereof. We can tie our work, and we often, often, often do this. We tar- tie our identity to our work. And um, what I wanted to start with was maybe just some examples that concretize this for us a little bit. Um, and you may be like, wait, why are we showing a picture of Madonna to start um, our equip class today? I want to give you some examples because there have been some very poignant um, articles written or interviews given with um, some very high-profile celebrities over the years. And I'm just going to give you a few examples of them. Um, but it drives home this point and where you might look at this person and go, man, I'd never be like that. Um, I think you'll find um, 
this quote that I'm going to share from Madonna um, to be something where you're like, oh, maybe that hits a little closer to home than I would have anticipated. In a 1991 um, uh, interview, right in kind of Madonna's heyday, uh, Vanity Fair did a um, did a interview with her. Just uh, and it's and it's uh, it's incredibly sad and it's also very fascinating into her mind because she was kind of like the first one really to to push this envelope of just shock and awe um, when it comes to sexuality and and just really out there and she kind of reveled in it but as part of the article they said they asked her like what drives you why, why are you this way? <laughs> they didn't ask it that way, but why are you this way? And she said, my drive in life is from this horrible feel of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. In fact, she says, um, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Um, we look at somebody like Madonna, and you could fill in a number of names, I'll give you another one here in just a second, and you look at it and you say, what, why, why, did, why, have you, why, why are you this way in public? Why have you gone to these lengths? And at the root of it, she's very honest here. I mean, this is very, this is very self-knowing. She's like, I just don't want to be considered mediocre, and so I will do whatever it takes to not be like that. There's another article, um, everybody know who that is? Michael Jordan, um, the best basketball player that's ever lived. I'll, let you, I'll end the argument right there. Um, Michael Jordan, uh, I think it was 2013, um, ESPN did, a, did an interview with him, a really long article. You can still find it. It's called, Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. And in this article, basically the authors walking through multiple days in the life of Michael Jordan post-basketball. Michael, Michael Jordan's, I think, probably in his early 50s now, right? Um, and he, had, he, he was just about to turn 50. And it's a very fascinating look into his mind and his heart because he's admittedly saying, I don't know how to fill my life if I can't play basketball. That's been my identity. That's who I am. And now that I'm post my basketball career and I'm now in a place in life where I just can't do that stuff anymore. My body won't let me do it. Um, and you can tell he's struggling internally. I mean, even talking about, could I go back to the NBA at age 50? And everybody else is like, you're insane. But he's asking himself that question. And he says, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? His entire identity as a person, self-admittedly, is tied up in the fact that he was considered the best basketball player to ever live. It's a fascinating look. I'm going to give you one other example, um, and this is from the, the pinnacle of all personalities in cinematic history, um, Rocky Balboa. No, we're not talking about Sylvester Stallone. We're talking about Rocky Balboa. Um, anybody not familiar with Rocky? <laughs> Um, he doesn't actually exist, even though they're, even though the, the most famous thing in Philadelphia, we used to live there, even the most famous thing in Philadelphia is the statue of him at the Philadelphia Art Museum. He never actually existed. 
Um, he's the most famous sports figure in Philadelphia history, and he never actually existed. Um, but as one of the lines in, I think, the first Rocky, there were like 28 of them, uh, and they got incre increasingly worse as they went along. But um, he says this, and if I can go the distance, he's about to fight the premier fighter, Apollo Creed. Uh, for many of you, I didn't have to say that. But um, he's about to fight this guy. He's the underdog. He's the guy that nobody thinks has a shot. He says, if I can go the distance, you see. And he's from South Philly. And that bell rings, you know, and I'm still standing. I'm going to know for the first time in my life, you see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky Balboa's drive, his entire focus in this movie is not actually to win the fight. He just wants to go all, all, what, 13 rounds to prove that he's not a bum because his identity is wrapped up in what he does or what he doesn't do, what he, what, in his work, because he's a fighter. And we look at that and we say, okay, that last one's a bad example because it didn't actually happen, even though it was a great movie. Um, the other two, we look at it and go, wow, that's really sad. But then we have to ask ourselves, how much of my identity is tied up in my work, is tied up in what I do for a living or in what I want to do for a living, in, in what other people see from me as I do my work, how much of my identity is tied up in that? And I'd like to go to Genesis chapter 11 because in this text, this is, this is post-fall, this is post-flood, and we see the very first occurrence, um, oh, I wouldn't say the first occurrence, but a very, I think our first stark occurrence of seeing the effects of sin on mankind in their approach to work. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, I'm just going to read those, those verses. We see um, the account of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. In other words, the same, uh, they, there were no divergent languages yet. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And in kind of a stroke of irony, um, and the Lord came down. <laughs> They're going to build this city that takes them into the heavens. God has to come down to them. <laughs> and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We're in Genesis 11. We've kind of walked through um, the first few chapters of Genesis, and we've, we get here to post-flood. Post um, this probably isn't specifically meant to be in chronological order from Genesis chapter 10, because in Genesis chapter 10, we see a, in kind of that long genealogical history where it goes name by name and it says, so-and-so lived this many years and he had a son and his son's name was this, and then he lived another however many years. 
Um, when we get to Peleg in Genesis 10, we won't go back there, it says, and, and that's when the earth was divided. So there's a strong possibility that Genesis 11 kind of falls mid that line of descendants. But in, in Genesis 11, um, people now, since the, the flood, are now dispersing across the earth, and they're doing exactly what God had designed for them to do. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we talked about it. Fill the earth be fruitful and multiply. That's what they've been commissioned to do as God's vice regents or as his representatives. Those made in God's image, they were supposed to disperse and scatter across the whole earth and fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply. We see here, though, in Genesis 11 that these people, two things have happened. In fact, I'll give you an example of what it would quite possibly have looked like. That's a ziggurat, and it's quite possible that they were they were looking at building this, like this is the tower, this is the type of tower they would have been looking to build. And instead of dispersing across uh, creation, instead they go into the land of Shinar and they stop and they say, actually, let's congregate here and build a city. Instead of dispersing, let's build a city. Let's utilize ingenuity. If, we, if you look back at verse... Um, or, or right when it says, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, they are, they've, they've, they've made some technological advances, we see. They've gone from building everything with stone to now, because of ingenuity, because of their creativity, because they've been able to kind of have trial and error, they've seen how some things can be built, some that can't, and the, again, this ties to this concept of work, they, they find that, wait, we, had, we now have a way to make bricks instead of using stone for everything. Let's take this new technology that we have, and instead of dispersing across creation as God has told us to, let's congregate here and let's build a city. Now, their ingenuity, their use of bricks versus stone isn't a problem at all. That's actually, that's great. That's that's creativity. That's advanced. That, those, that, that's taking God's image and then and then utilizing it and saying, okay, how can we, uh, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, how can we bring chaos out of, or order out of chaos? That's great. But what they do here, and this is, this is very telling, they then take those bricks and they say, let's build a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. In other words, what they're, what they're saying here is, let's take our ingenuity and let's show how we are autonomous, how we are self-sufficient, how we are the ones who can figure this out, how we can be, in some sense, independent from God. And this isn't the first indication of men, again, like in the years following the flood, after God had already destroyed creation because of the wickedness and violence and the self-sufficiency across creation, they're right back into this. And they say, now let's build a tower and let's build a city. Let's all congregate. Let's not disperse. And let's build a, a huge tower with its top in the heavens to show how self-sufficient we are. Let's, let's show our autonomy. And let's use our technology and our creativity to do just that. But then on top of it, on top of that, they say, let's make a name for ourselves. They're tying their creativity, their ingenuity, that they, they sh show not only in the fact that they now have bricks that they've made instead of just using stones. Now, let's build a city, and in that city, let's make this beautiful, um, this beautiful tower and make a name for ourselves. Let's tie our identities, not to God, not to our, 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 um, 
the fact that we have been made in the image of God, let's tie it to what we can do with our hands. Let's tie it to the ingenuity and the creativity that we can display for everybody. And that's when we see God, and, and again, that kind of uh, ironic uh, writing here says, and God actually had to come down <laughs> to see it. God's not threatened by it at all, but God had to come down to see it. And then he disperses them as they should have done from the beginning, and he does that by confusing their languages. But we see in this text this initial tendency on full display for mankind, and not just the people in Babel, but for us too, to then start to tie our identity, who we are, our value, our worth, to what we can do with our hands. We tie it to our work. You can think about that in, in terms of your own career or your own job or your own volunteer work, fill in the blank, and you can find often the tendency in our hearts to say, my value is tied into what I can do. It's very interesting that in Scripture we see this theme woven from this point in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, through to Isaiah chapter 13. Babel, it's tied to the Hebrew word for confusion, because that's where the Lord confused languages, but then Babel is also directly tied to the city named Babylon. Same, it's same root word. And so you see from, from, from Genesis 11 all the way through to Isaiah 13, this theme, Babylon represents self-sufficiency apart from God, or man's attempt to find self-sufficiency apart from God. And then you go into Revelation from, again, Genesis to Revelation, we see this theme interwoven throughout Scripture to show Babylon represents this tendency for mankind to try to find our identity in our own ability to be self-sufficient. All the way till Revelation 18, where um, John starts Revelation 18 by saying, Behold, Babylon the Great is fallen. It is this theme that runs through Scripture that we can also see kind of running through our own lives because of the effects of the fall, because of the effects of sin. We tend to say, what I can do, what I can figure out on my own makes me self-sufficient from God. And even if you and I are followers of Jesus, I think you can probably see this in your own work as well or in the tendencies that you have in your work. And this is where I want to spend the balance of our time, really, because, and this is where our discussion comes in, because how does this play itself out in our work? So how can we look at our work or our approach to work and start to ask these questions like, maybe where am I showing that this is the tendency in my own heart? And where do I need to repent um, of my tendency to find my identity in my work. Let me give you a few suggestions. In fact, Tim Keller, who we, we mentioned the book that um, uh, kind of the, the theme of this argument um, that Paul and I are working through, um, Every Good Endeavor, he's the author of that book, but he gave a, he gave a talk uh, in Michigan a few years ago, and he, he kind of worked through this theme as well, and he gave several examples of what you might see in your life if you are trying to find your identity in your work. One of those, workaholism. If you can't ever shut it off, if you can't ever put your work away, it may be showing that you, you're, you're trying to find your identity in that. Because you're thinking, um, this work can't get done if I'm not the one to do it. Or um, if you want anything done, if you want it done the right way, you gotta do it yourself. 
You ever heard yourself saying that or thinking that? Probably leads to workaholism. If you can't shut it off, you're quite probably finding your identity in your work. Your success goes to your head. If you find that you're being successful in your work, are you finding that, you know, that's giving you a sense of self-importance? I think we all struggle with this to some degree or another. You may not be the kind that shows it, or you may be the kind that shows it. Then it's obvious to everybody else and maybe not you. But you may be the one that just kind of takes a quiet satisfaction in being better than everybody else at your job. It might show up in um, the fact that you can't accept criticism. Or, on a personal level, every internal conversation you're having about all of your coworkers is them being wrong and you being right. <laughs> or every conversation that you're actually having verbally with, your, uh, with coworkers about how maybe management or ownership just doesn't get it. <laughs> maybe showing that you're finding your identity in, the, in your work or the quality of your work. Maybe it's, maybe it's this, work is psychologically enslaving. Kind of like Michael Jordan. He cannot get away from the game of basketball because it keeps drawing him back in because that's where his identity is. Or maybe you choose the wrong jobs. Maybe, you, maybe you're looking at maybe moving um, from one company to another or maybe you're, you're still kind of in the mode of, I don't know if I've found my career, but I want to go in this direction. Um, or maybe you're partway through your career and you, you're looking at that going, yeah, I, I kind of chose this line of work and I never felt at peace in it. In fact, I constantly struggle in it because I chose it because it brings some type of status or a certain level of pay that I think that I, I, I needed in order to feel important. I needed for my own self-identity or my own, my own identity. I needed, I needed that to fill that void that tells me whether or not I'm important. I, I wanted to add a few other thoughts to those. The opinions of either superiors or peers or those who work for you potentially consume you. Where you find that you're working out of a sense of just getting that, that, that approval that you crave. And if you don't get the approval, it's, it is crushing to you. Or maybe you're working so that you just don't get the disapproval. <laughs> maybe getting accolades doesn't matter to you. It's just, I don't want other people to think badly about me because I'm not doing my job as well as I could be. Um, maybe you become, you've become selfishly competitive. It's okay to, 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 to be competitive, right? I mean, that, that, that actually drives a lot of good work. You know, you play a game or you, maybe, you're, maybe you're, your department is in competition with another department to get a project done faster. That can have a lot of good pragmatic effects. What it can also do is make us look at each other and go, okay, how can I be better, at least better than them at this? So that I don't get that disapproval or so that I do gain the approval. Um, maybe, and this is especially pertinent right now, we're looking at our job as the thing that's actually causing us to subsist. We're looking at our jobs as the thing that is between us and starvation or between us and maybe just a terrible life because we don't have any money. And we start to try to take God's place when God's the one who says, don't worry about what you're going to put on, what you're going to eat, where you're going to live. I, I've got all of that. Like I literally, am, I've got it. We instead place our trust and our faith in our ability to keep our employment, because if I don't have this employment, what's going to happen? When God's going, I've got this under control. But 
part of my identity is wrapped up in that. To say, uh, if I don't have a job, then I'm not, I, um, I'm not as important as somebody else. And then I feel shame when I have to tell somebody I got laid off or I got fired. Because I now feel, as, I feel less of a human being or I feel less important because I don't have my work. To say, yeah, 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 you're, you're important because you still have a job or you have a great job. And then this, is kind of, this kind of goes back to the workaholism thing, but rest isn't an option. You find yourself, uh, this is something I struggle with immensely, you find yourself peeking at your phone in the middle of the night when you wake up to see if you got an email that you need to address. Bad, bad, bad. And I do it all the time. But rest isn't an option because I, ha- I feel like if, I, if I'm not doing it, then it's never going to get done right. Everybody else depends on me. (laughs) I just encourage you, as you go through your week, look for those times that you're finding, you're trying to find your identity in your work. If you, if if those are, they can be great things, but if they become the ultimate thing, now all of a sudden, we've divorced our identity from who we are um, made by God, and we're trying to find it in self-sufficiency. And this is is where I want to finish. A quick quote, Babel is a pointed case study of the impossibility of, being, be, of building any collective endeavor, a society, an organization, a movement that really works unless it is grounded beyond itself in God. And that's where we're going to finish. The answer to our identity problem is wrapped up in the gospel. That's the beautiful thing about following Jesus. Um, the gospel changes everything. There isn't one aspect of life that it does not completely transform. It just may not have completely transformed it in your life or my life yet, but it will transform it. Jesus said, behold, I'm making all things new. The gospel tells us, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... (laughs) but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our identity in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, that status can never be added to and it can never be taken away from. So regardless of your competency at work, literally your competency, hopefully you're competent, but even if you're terrible at your job, in Christ, that doesn't diminish your status at all. You may be the best at your position ever. You may be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That does not change your status at all. You are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Nothing about your job, excuse me, the status that it brings, the social capital that it brings, the money that it brings, or the lack thereof doesn't change anything about that. So as we tend this week to find our identity in our work, because it'll happen either later today if you go back into the office or later on this week, you're going to start to find your identity in your work. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves because in the gospel we're reminded nothing that happens here, even if I'm fired, can change my status in Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll finish up. Lord, thank you that Jesus defines our identity um, because in him we are clothed in righteousness. Remind us of that this week as we are assaulted with, with our, our own tendency to try to live sufficiently, live self-sufficiently away from you. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.